I'm so hungry I could eat David Arquette. Today on Cinema Oblivia. Welcome to Cinema Oblivia, your podcast for discussions on out-of-date, out-of-fashion, out-of-style, old, or obscure films. I'm your host, James Eldred, and who is joining me for today's episode? I'm Sonia Ballantyne, uh, host, a uh, co-host of Live from the Pool House and First Nations non-cannibal person. <laughs> That's, I'm glad you're non-cannibal, yes. <laughs> um, I had your, pre- your, your other co-host, uh, TL, from Pool House to talk about uh, Jim Carter, which is a great, terrible film, or a terrible, great film, or just a terrible film. <laughs> and I feel today we are talking about a much better film. We are talking about the 1999 cannibal western Ravenous. Yeah. And you specifically want to talk about this film. We've already talked about this because I forgot to hit record, but let's <laughs> act like that didn't happen. So, oh, Sonia, yes. tell me why you want to talk about Ravenous. Well, Ravenous is like not really one of my favorite movies, but I, I have a good place for it in my heart because I have a lot of friends who are obsessed with Robert Carlyle and Ravenous is one of the three films that that a lot of my friends who are into Robert Carlyle Carlyle recommend because it's this one uh, a movie called Priest which is also by the same director as Ravenous and The Full Monty and so like I I've seen this movie a few times and it is just such a strange movie that it's like I like it, but I don't know if I would like recommend it often. You know what I mean? And so it is something every time it's on, I'll watch it, but it keeps getting weirder and weirder every time I watch it. And I think it's largely because of it's like uh, the story of how it got made. And like, you can see a lot of it in the movie about how it's a very piecemeal. And I don't know, I, I really enjoy this movie, but it's also a very strange movie that kind of moves too fast, kind of doesn't move fast enough, kind of leaves things on the ground. And yeah. And it gets, it gets weird. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, there aren't many quote unquote normal films about cannibalism. I would say, <laughs> um, maybe I'm wrong there. I don't know, but you know, it is a weird movie. I love this movie. Uh, I actually saw this in the theater the day it came out. <laughs> I'm the one. Me and my friend were the one with two people. What? What? It. Nobody saw this in the theater when it came out. This movie was a tremendously huge bomb, and. This shouldn't surprise anyone. It's a cannibal western that came out in 1999. I don't know. These are the these are the kind of films that when you found out they got greenlit, you're like, how? Why? <laughs> like, regardless of it being good or bad, like Hollywood is a business and they got to make that money. And what well, and were I they think, thinking? Yeah. Uh, was this around the time that Guy Pierce was having his like his big res- like resurgence? Like Memento would come out the next year, but like he had been already been in things like Priscilla Queen of the Desert and L.A. Confidential. So maybe it was riding on. Oh well, Guy Pierce is in this movie, so it, it'll probably make some money. Well, <laughs> so. It's not really a Guy Pierce resurgence. It's the Guy Pierce surgence. Like this yeah. was <laughs> the peak of Guy Pierce. 
but like this is right when he was starting to get the, as popular as he ever was. This was the first big movie he made after L.A. Confidential, mm-hmm. and that was the movie that really made him. I think, you know, yeah, because, and I'm trying yeah. to see where exactly where uh, Robert Carlyle's career would have been in this time this time period as well. Yeah, he was doing you know he was doing stuff. He was you know because there was transpotting. And there was Full Transpotting, Monty. Full Monty. And the, transpotting it, and Full Monty, and it's the same year as The World Is Not Enough and Angela's Ashes. So this is also... Oh, I totally forgot he was in The World's Not Enough. Oh, yeah, too. and I love him in Angela's <laughs> Ashes. He was amazing in that. I always think of him as either Full Monty or Transpotting. You know, those yeah, are, exactly. Those are my two. So, <laughs> and 28 Weeks Later, which I do not like. I actually like that just because of... Um, I think he saves it. Like, he is the reason that movie is any good. Like, because he's also, like, spoilish for that movie, but he is the villain in that movie. Yeah, he was just, like, he's such an amazing actor, and I, like, I really do enjoy, uh, whenever I see him in anything, like, I watched that terrible Once Upon a Time TV show just for him. Mm. I saw Aragon just because of him, (laughs) and so it, and he was terrible in Aragon. Like, like, he was good, but, like, he, it's basically, like, watching, um, if you have a good piece of pizza that you found in the trash it's still trash pizza (laughs) oh damn that's harsh yeah he this is kind of the peak of his film career like this era i would say is when he was in the most films nowadays he does a lot of british and uk television Mm-hmm. And, I and he was say, recently in uh, the 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 sequel to Trainspotting as well. So yeah. Oh like, yeah. I mean, well, I everybody doing, was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think he's still doing a lot of TV as well. So. Yeah, yeah. He's doing a lot of UK TV, and you know, Guy Pierce. He's of course still acting, and he's in a ton of stuff. But I don't feel like he's the A-lister that he was around, around this, this time. Because yeah. he had after this, you had Memento, and that was a huge indie hit. And then you kind of had his his shot at the big time was the Time Machine and the Count of Monte Cristo. Mm-hmm. And nope. And then so since then, he, like he was in the road. He was in Hurt Locker, of course. That was a huge and Prometheus, Iron Man three. He was in Bloodshot, and those are all big movies. But I wouldn't say he's the appeal. Like he's yeah. a good actor in those films, and I think he's found a good a good lane to be in now. Yeah, he's still working. Yeah, like so that, and that's like the best thing. Yeah, like because yeah. like being an act, um, because he is a very talented actor. Like he was in the King's Speech, but again, like he wasn't that he wasn't the main character in the King's Speech or in no. Prometheus or in Iron Man three. Well, he technically was kind of the most important character, one of the most important characters in Iron Man three, but he was still like he wasn't the the. He wasn't the draw in that movie, I think. Yeah, I, yeah. I never saw Iron Man 3, so I'm not He's up on that. He's pretty good in it. I didn't mind him. Yeah, like, I saw him in Prometheus, but, like, Prometheus just stopped. Like, ugh. Like, I remember watching, coming out of the theater seeing Prometheus, and I was like, if I wanted to watch Alien, I would have went and watched Alien. Like, I, I, sw- like it was a terrible movie. I just hated it. It's really, in- I've, not to get off topic, but I've never seen Prometheus, and I'm a huge Alien fan. I've talked about mm-hmm. that on this podcast. And everybody... Prometheus really seems to be a love-hate movie. Mm-hmm. And that isn't like my dad loved it. Absolutely loved it. And most of my friends hated it and a couple of them loved it. Nobody's like, it's okay. So <laughs> I kind of want it. I still I do own it. I should watch it someday, but I'm an idiot who just buys movies. Um this movie has a lot of other people who are like very indicative of the era when it came out. Like David Arquette is in this. 
Yeah, and, and it has my my longtime crush, uh, Jeremy Davies, in one of mm. his usual, like, freaky, like, twitchy, kind of a weirdo roles. Like, I think the only time he never plays a twitchy weirdo is in God of War, the video game where he plays... <laughs> um, who does he play? Bla- Balthier? I can't pronounce the name, but... I, yeah, I forgot he, he's in God of that, yeah. Yeah, he's in God of War, and that's the only time he never plays one, a scientist, or two, like, a weirdo that you think is kind of off. And so, yeah, yeah I had a massive crush on him around this time because uh, this movie came out when I was about... I think I would have seen it when I was about 15 on TV or something. And the draw for me was, oh, Jeremy Davies is in this because (laughs) I, whenever I had a crush on an actor, I would, uh, I would look into all of their films. And this was the only one I really, really enjoyed. Like uh, Jeremy Davies had been in other movies such as like uh, Spanking the Monkey and the Million Dollar (laughs) Hotel. Like, and this was the only one I actually liked. Because it was, well, well, I love Million Dollar Hotel too, but that mostly because of the positive memories I have around it. But this one was actually pretty fun. I like this. Well, he's also in Saving Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan, yes. Yeah. And I remember. I sorry. I remember when I saw that movie in high school. All these guys were just throwing shade at Jeremy Davies's character in Saving Private Ryan because he's the one who lets the German go, right? And I, which I comes back so, to yeah. haunt him later when the German kills his friend. Yeah. And so yeah. my a lot of the the terrible high school boys I grew up with were like, oh yeah, uh, he was the worst part of the movie, like because he was such a pussy, he couldn't kill anybody, <laughs> and I'm like. You have never been to war, <laughs> like, yeah, and so yeah. I think like Jeremy Davies doesn't get as much um doesn't doesn't get as much say like well doesn't get as much as acclaim as he deserves. I yeah. feel we've been going as, into the cast. We really haven't said like who they are playing in this film. We have <laughs> um the movie is a, is, a, is a cannibal western. It's about a um a like a fort, yeah. In yeah, the boy, of it's about a, a guy in the, in the army or cavalry or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, during the Mexican-American War, uh, an army uh, lieutenant, John Boyd, is fighting, and he's a coward and fakes being dead and manages to get behind enemy lines and capture their commander. And he's awarded for it, but his commanding officer knows he's faking it, so mm-hmm. he sends him to go in the middle of nowhere in California. And in this very small fort and that's mostly deserted in the winter. And then there you have, so Guy Pierce plays that guy. Um, Jeremy Davis plays the private Toffler who's a, like, who's a like pr- the priest. Yeah. Super pious, super like this dude would be way into like Kristen metal. Like if he was yeah. alive now. <laughs> and then David Arquette is kind of like the, like the lowest on the right there. He plays this guy named Cleves. who just kind of hangs out and gets high. The commanding officer there is uh, Colonel Hart. He's played by Jeffrey Jones. Now, Jeffrey Jones is a problematic figure now. I understand yes, that. Yes. But he is very good in this film. He's very good in many films. We'll just leave it at that. It is what it is. Then there's also at the fort, there's Private Rake, or Reich, um, mm-hmm. who's played like by this. Neil McDonald? Neil McDonald, 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 who would, I don't know. He's hot. I don't know what. <laughs> Like he's, he's well, he's in a lot of movies. Like he's one of those like uh, you see him in a lot of movies, but you don't really get to know his name. Really, like he's a character actor, basically. Like he was in um, what was it? He was in First Con- Star Trek: First Contact, Minority Report, Flags of Our Fathers, Bad Street Fighter movie. <laughs> like not the bad one from the nineties, yeah. The bad one, the Legend of Chun Li one. <laughs> he's in. So. He's in Sonic the Hedgehog, and he's in Captain America: The First Avenger. Yes. yes. And he's like 
super Christian apparently or Catholic in real life, and like he won't even do kiss like kiss scenes with other with other women. So, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I'm sure he's so. I'm sure he's not stoked that I think he's hot. But you know, I don't. Who knows? I don't want to judge. We don't know. We don't know. What is you know, not fair. And also there on on the, at the fort is the doctor. His name is Knox, mm-hmm. and he is just a drunken drunk drunk. Uh, and he's played by Steven uh, Spinella, Spinella, who does yeah. all kinds of stuff. He's one of those guys. And then there are two more people there. There is George and Martha. And Which are probably not their real names. Because I, I just realized that today because I was watching it. And I'm like, what kind of, like, so uh, George does not speak English. Like, the only person he, he really talks to is, like, uh, Cleves. And yeah. it's mostly about weed. And the fact that they're named George and Martha, who are obviously named after George Washington and Martha Washington, like I just okay. got yeah. that when <laughs> when I said it out loud, when I said George and Martha out, I mean, oh yeah. That well, makes, and it was often yeah. a thing back in the day uh, with Native people. Like, uh, I don't know how this would this would be Southern, this would be Northern Ca- California. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't probably be the same thing. But in my area of Manitoba, when we would go to, when our people would traditionally go to forts to trade with white people, um, if we gave our names, they'd be like, okay, that's hard to that's hard to say. So I'm going to give you uh, John Ballantyne is your name now. Yeah. And so, or they could have been like my great grandfather's father, who changed their name from uh from what was the name Greenleaf to George, just so they wouldn't be hassled by white folks when they wrote their names down. Well, that, and so I think yeah. the same thing happened to happened to George and Martha, and that so happens. it's yeah. yeah. That even <laughs> happens. Most of my friends in Pittsburgh were uh from China because they were oh. going to CMU and they changed their first names. Well, and it's just because it's like easier on white people to pronounce those sorts of names, yeah. And like, and it, and it's kind of weird. Like, I'm glad there's such a reclaiming now of people with their traditional names. Mm-hmm. Like, I know the Mohawks do that now, where they have um they have their traditional names that are very very hard to pronounce unless you really know how to speak Mohawk. And they're like, I don't care, you have to say it. <laughs> so you <laughs> learn to say Schwarzenegger, so you can learn to say my name too. <laughs> yeah, I, I I definitely. If someone is feels forced to change their name, that's messed up. As someone who has a last name that people for some reason can't pronounce, I, I get it. And like my mom's been married twice and she never went back to her maiden name. Because her maiden name <laughs> her maiden name I don't even, I don't want to say it, but her maiden name is spelled one way and pronounced completely different. So every she got divorced, like, nope, no, no, I'm not nope, no. So it is messed up. We have to change their names regardless though. And there is <laughs> I th- but the both those actors, um, uh, John Running Fox plays George, and Sheila Sheila Towsey plays Martha. They they don't have unfortunately they don't have a ton to do in the film. Yeah, um, like they they just elaborate on uh, the the Windigo legend, which is not really. I'm really one of the things I really do love about this film is that um, the Windigo is traditionally a legend of the Algonquin people, like my people. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Algon- Algonquin is technically like the like the the way Latin is the the father of English, German, French. Algonquin is the father of Cree, Ojibwe, Black. like so. We're in the same family. Okay. And so, uh, Windigo is um, a legend in cold areas because, uh, yeah. like, cannibalism obviously is a really big taboo, yeah. and it was just a legend to keep people from resorting to it in times of struggle because those would happen often, and so the idea of uh, 
of the one bad thing you could never do being eating another person to survive is yes. a big legend that goes throughout our our culture and it's still something that comes up a lot in the winter now too like we still talk about it um but it's it's kind of funny the way they changed it because in the in the legend of the story the reason why um uh, a wendigo can never be full is because they don't have a stomach so yeah, as they eat I was and reading eat about and that. Eat, yeah as they eat and eat and eat it falls out and they can't get any more and so it's just like it's really cool to see that they took the time to uh, at least um at least make some like because most of the time when when stories about indigenous people are told they just take the cool stuff and then they're like ah, no one's gonna care and in this one it seemed like they at least took the time to include the story but also make it their own like technically i wouldn't say that the men like i'm glad that they don't call the men wendigo they call yeah. them cannibals that was yeah. one of my favorite things i was well, like he, okay that's cool <laughs> um at one point george points to somebody and says wendigo yeah he says that about uh robert carlyle's yeah. character yes yeah after and- he uh, is caught um sucking on uh <laughs> toffer's wound I yes think. yes yes <laughs> key point of the film is that a character admits to cannibalism and they go to find the the camp where he was because he says people are still trapped there and throughout the film it becomes apparent that if you eat someone else you get stronger you get stronger and you also heal faster and Mm -hmm. you um as we see with uh, like spoiler alert as we see with jeffrey jones's character after he eats um the flesh of another person he doesn't have to wear glasses anymore i forgot about that yeah Yeah. (laughs) he also walks much more self-assuredly and just he can crush walnuts with his bare hands. Yes. Yeah. And, and we see Robert Carlyle, um, who tells the story about how he had tuberculosis and was close to death. Mm-hmm. And he heard the story about the Wendigo from a guide who he then killed and ate and was like, hey, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. and yeah. so I just love that story. Like, it's just yeah. really, um, I think this. I think this movie wouldn't have worked if it didn't have Robert Carlyle and uh, Guy Pierce, because I love Guy Pierce taking it so seriously, and he's so tense the whole time. And Robert Carlyle is just like um, dancing around in the background the whole time. It just Bob, it just works for me that whole part. <laughs> Robert Carlyle's energy in this film is very much like a vampire movie. And yes. There's a scene where he is shot and gets up and he looks like a vampire and he has yeah, the blood coming out of his mouth thing, like a vampire. Yeah. And you know, the the I feel like, you know, when everything I've read about the Wendigo, am I saying it right? Wendigo. Oh, Wendigo, yeah. Yeah, Wendigo. They uh, they are monsters. Like the giant yes. white scary beasts. And I feel like this is a movie that is kind of like, well, what if that was based in a, in, in in some kind of scientific fact? Like like you know, not 
the idea of Wendigos aren't real, but the basic idea of it has a kernel of truth. And I feel yeah. like that's the route they're going, which it makes it a much makes it a much easier film to make and also doesn't turn it into a monster movie. It turns it into a vampire movie because then yeah. the monsters can hide in plain sight. Uh, yeah, a Wendigo a, can't hide in plain sight. Yeah. Cause I'm writing, um, I, like I'm a writer and mm-hmm. I am currently writing a feature film that is largely about the Wendigo. But in my case, it's about how the Wendigo is a virus that infects people and kind of turns them into zombies, but they're not really zombies because every wound that they take on stays with them. And so mm. as they, as they get hurt, as they get, um, as they get frostbite, as they get uh, their legs broken, that sort of thing, they can still move, but they take damage. And so that's the thing about uh, the, the, the cannibals in this movie, they take damage. Yes, but they heal from it. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's what makes it a bit of a, like a, more of a vampire movie type thing. Like you were saying. Yeah, and there's a lot to talk about how they portray it. I think it's interesting how they do it. Um, when they talk about the power of eating eating people and how it's addictive, it mm-hmm. almost comes off like for me, it's 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 a drug metaphor. Almost. Yeah, like they can't stop. They want to quit, but like uh, one character wants to quit, and it's very hard for him. Mm-hmm. He 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 said that it's, it's wrong, and then Robert Carlyle's like, ah, morality, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is always a fun way to say that word, <laughs> morality. <laughs> but it, it, that's the metaphor I get from it. There's a lot of different ways to read what the cannibalism is in this film. Some people, um, we'll get into the production because the production of the movie was was bonkers. Somebody involved with it said the movie was about Hollywood. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if I see that. I think they might be bringing their own baggage. Well, a lot of people said it's about, like, uh, I was reading about how some of the people who created the movie saw it as eating meat in general. And hmm. we were, I was actually watching this movie today with my sister, and we had to, like, she told me to shut it off. Once I told her what it was about, um, she told me to shut it off as we were eating. And I'm glad we did, because um, the eating scenes in this movie are so gross. Like, the audio they do for the noises of people yeah. eating. Like, I'm usually not, like, a very picky person. You can chew with your mouth full around me. I don't really <laughs> care. But, like, the scene at the beginning where they're eating the steaks, and then the scene at the, um, the scene where they're eating the stew and like you can just hear like i don't know what they did if they put the mics next to the bowls or something but you can hear it you can hear them slurping it just really grossed me plus i don't really like steaks anyway like when they're like that like when they're all fat and grisly yeah there's a lot of sinew like a lot of uh gnawing sounds like good good adr work whoever what did the the foley like a plus like they should get more work (laughs) yeah so i i am I imagine when you said somebody involved in the movie thought it was a metaphor for just eating meat. Is that, the, is that the director? Yeah, I believe so, yes. Yeah. So this movie had two directors. The first director has a name that's really hard to say, so give me a second. His name was Milko Manchevetsky. He's from, he was from, you know, what was Yugoslavia. He is still alive. He still, he, he made, a, he did some work just a couple years ago. He was hired as director. The movie was filmed mostly in Yugoslavia. Um, as a substitute for California, he said that an executive at the at the company at Fox 2000 was over over managing the film, and she fired him. And then she, this executive Laura Ziskin, this is all according to Mansevetsky. So who knows how true it is? You know, you have to 
take it with a crane of salt. This executive hired Raja Gosnell, who directed Home Alone 3, <laughs> <laughs> to replace um, Milk, Milk Joe. No one wanted to work with him. Then Robert Carlyle knew Antonia Bird, and he petitioned for her to take the, the job, and she did. He knew Antonia Bird because she directed Priest. Yes, which is, which a, is a very, movie. very good movie, yes. Yeah, Priest is another divisive film. I, I haven't seen that one. Um, that's like the, the gay priest movie, right? Yes. So I had to kind of be reductive about it, but the, the long, the, <laughs> the, the back of the box blurb, I guess, would be that. Yeah. She was a, and I'm not saying this in a derisive matter, she was a British vegetarian socialist. So <laughs> a, British, a British vegetarian socialist making a movie about cannibals in America is, you know, a choice. And I feel like, I haven't seen, have you seen her other films? So you've seen Priest. I've seen Priest. I've seen, I saw Mad Love when I was a kid. Um, I haven't seen any of her other ones. Um, let me see. I'm also checking out her. Yeah, she unfortunately have, passed away yeah. in 2013. Yes. But I have seen Priest and I really, yeah, like I really enjoy um, some of the, I think that was the reason why um, Robert Carlyle was able to have so much fun with his role just because they knew each other so well. And like some of the choices he made are not choices I would I would think that people would and any other director would have let him get away with. Like specifically that scene outside the cave where he's yeah. turning from uh, Calhoun to Ives. Yeah, like so I don't think if I think if Antonia Bird hadn't been there, he wouldn't have been able to do that scene. I yeah, think. and I <laughs> I feel that's that's the most she brought to the film was being able to tailor the performances because she came into the movie three weeks into filming. So <laughs> there's not much she could have done. You know, I, I feel like she obviously shot more than half the film because that's how DGA works. Whoever shoots more than half gets the credit. But she was not involved with pre-production. She was not involved with casting. She was not involved with any of those things. So for her, it's probably one step above being a work for hire, you know? Yes. And I know she was not a big fan of the film. She wanted to re-edit it. They wouldn't let her. She wanted to take out the narration. And shows she's one of the people who saw it as a metaphor for L.A. and mm-hmm. Hollywood. I don't agree with that metaphor. I think, again, and about being about eating meat also, I do feel that is her bringing her own, you know, interests or viewpoints into the film. Yeah, because I personally see this film as a fear of death. That's the biggest thing I take from it is because I was reading, I, I was going deep into it like earlier and like um, every, every single time cannibalism is brought up or every time somebody is faced with it, it's usually because they're about to die. And so that is the big uh, allure Ives has on Boyd when, because he, he knows this about him. And so he wounds him uh, at least like he wounds him once to make him eat flesh again. Yeah. And so I see it a lot in that case. Um, there's also a reading of this movie as being very homoerotic. And I think it has to do with the mm-hmm. vampirism idea too. Cause like the reason why a lot of my girlfriends really dig this movie is because the movie ends with them dying in each other's arms. I so- don't, I do not see, you know, as somebody, and my boyfriend also will, will often try to, will, will look for those, that subtext in films. I don't see it. I do not. They could, just because, um, 
you could read it with like, because like, what is sex about? Transfer of bodily fluids. Because they do a lot. Like they are covered in blood they're penetrating each other often they're fighting for being the top and like because that whole scene at the end where they're fighting over where they're trying to kill each other right before they they fall into the trap like they are basically penetrating each other and i'm like i remember my one of my good friends kira shout out to her like uh, that was part of the reason people got to watch this because um ives is making fuck eyes at uh boyd this whole movie it's horrifying well not horrifying i really like it but um but boyd no, it's horrifying if, if, it. yeah. if, if that character <laughs> made fuck eyes at me i'd be horrified you can say <laughs> because, that okay because like, boyd should have been like i've i've just had boyd at his mercy like the whole movie and why doesn't he kill him? Like, even, uh, uh, like, I'm just looking at, oh, no, sorry. I, I thought this was under the Ravenous post. Like, there was a, a link on Antonia, Bur- Antonia Bird's uh, Wikipedia that said, list of LGBT-related films directed by women. And I thought Ravenous was listed on no, there. No, <laughs> Priest is. Priest is. <laughs> yeah, so, Priest is, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the writer of this film is a guy named Ted Griffin. And he wrote, he was, he was a co-producer on Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. He... He um, has done a few other things, and I, based on his other work, I have a hard time seeing, you know, uh, LGBT part, yeah. themes in this. Yeah. He he did Best Laid Plans, Ocean's Eleven, Matchstick Man, Rumor Has It, Tower Heist. You know, not exactly subversive or deep movies. Some of those are good movies, but they're not, you know, I don't. It's fun to read those things into films like this, and maybe maybe Robert Carlyle is bringing that, and maybe Antonia Burr is bringing that, but I don't think it was in the script. That's I just don't my. Think, yeah, I think Robert Carlyle was playing it as okay. He's in love with Boyd, hmm. and he see like he he wants to corrupt Boyd. I think like it's like that. Uh, going back to the vampirism angle, it's like Lestat trying to trying to seduce Louis into vampirism. Where Boyd mm-hmm. is Louis and uh, Ives is the Lestat, and um, it's it, it's kind of like a metaphor for SDIs. Like uh, like I could read it that way. Like I, I guess I'm reading it that way now because that's, like I, I'm just like two hot bad, guys making out. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a bad take. You know that goes back to the to the cannibalism as a, as a disease idea, yeah, and, and like, that and that's an interesting take. Definitely. They even like there's this whole comment about cannibalism as sexuality because there's this whole bit where um like on Ives's um you, you find out that Ives when he when he killed his wagon part wagon train he was traveling with a farmer and his wife a slave and a bunch of other people a guide and there's a scene where um where Boyd is asking Ives like did you did you eat the wife. And <laughs> there's this comment where I was, like is totally saying that he like had oral sex with the wife, and I was just dying at that part because the way uh, Boyd reacts just fucking kills me because he's like yeah. you're disgusting. There's some great great black humor in this. Some of it's obviously intended to be humorous. Some of it's not. My favorite line in the movie is when uh, he's telling the story of the of his version of the cannibalism story, and he says. He came back to the camp and they were eating a guy's legs. And then he said, and then things got bad. I yeah. love that. I love that. It's like if things got bad after the cannibalism, then yowza. But yeah. 
parts of this film are slightly based on a true story. Um, mm-hmm. The Donner Party, yes. Well, not the Donner Party and Alfred Packer, specifically Alfred Packer. Al- Alfred Packer was a guy who went on an expedition with some other men from Utah to California. He claimed he knew the way. He didn't. This is all his version of the story because nobody else lived. They all vanished. He came back and t- he came to the town of Colorado with a lot of money and a lot of other people's clothes. <laughs> and he claimed that the party as a whole resorted to cannibalism to survive. Mm-hmm. Other people say that he killed everybody and ate all of them. Nobody knows what happened. Uh, he was convicted of murder. It was overruled. He it got it became man's manslaughter. He eventually got out of prison and maybe became a vegetarian. That's kind of a <laughs> uh, a subject of debate. This that is also the inspiration for the movie Cannibal the Musical, mm-hmm. um, but by, by the South Park guys. So and there's other, there's been other films based on Alfred Packer because it, it's 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 a material that is ripe for adaptations because nobody knows what happened. Yeah, that's a similar thing happened during the Donner Party as well. Like, um, yeah. not to reference another podcast, but there's a podcast called the the Last Podcast on the Left, where they do a deep dive into yes. the Donner Party, and they discuss this one guide who uh, was basically every single time something negative happened, he's like, "Oh, I guess we got to resort to cannibalism." <laughs> like they they would like uh, they would hit a rock in the road, and he'd be, he'd be, on their day first day out uh, traveling and be like. Okay, time to resort to cannibalism because it, it it's always makes me laugh how quickly people, uh, mostly white people in these stories, decide they're going to resort to cannibalism. Like I'm, st- I'm thinking specifically of the movie City Slickers too, where they're um, they're stranded out in the uh, out in the I'm desert. Sorry. Yeah, they're stranded out in the desert overnight, and they have no fire, so they're terrified that they're going to freeze to death. And so one of the friends is like, okay, if worst comes to worst and I die first, I want you to eat me. <laughs> and so um, yes. uh, uh, Billy Crystal's character is totally calling uh, calling his bluff because like, they're not going to die that quickly in, in the middle of nowhere when yeah. there's three of them they could huddle. And it has the best joke I've ever heard where he's like, eat you? I don't even like talking to you on the phone. <laughs> yes. I, I, I'm sorry I laughed so hard, but that's the first time I've, anyone, I've ever heard anyone say, well, this made me think of City Slickers 2. <laughs> too, like, yeah. Because no one thought of City Slickers 2 this millennium you're the first um, so good job That's one of, isn't John Lovitz in that yes he plays yeah, Billy John... Crystal's brother yes, yes um, and, and Jack was... Blance is in it even though he died in the first movie yeah, yeah. he plays uh, his own twin which yes, is like, of course really, he does which is i really like that movie it's really funny but yeah yeah, yeah. anytime there's any mention of cannibalism i always go back to that movie (laughs) (laughs) but it's so like uh, this movie is also really um i don't know like i i have like i I think there's a reason why vampirism is always sexy and i think that carlisle picks up on certain parts of it like once he goes full ives like right before he kills jeremy davies's character and right after he knocks um, Colonel Reich off the mountain, or no, Private Reich off the mountain, he's just all sinewy and like panther like. And like, I like how scared um, Guy Pierce's character is of him, even though he's a trained soldier and should know better. Um, but I, I like the little references they make to uh, Boyd being a terrible soldier. 
I like the idea of a pro- the protagonist of this film is a total coward. Yes, and, and I like that. That's, even like, that's his arc the whole like time. Like when you were talking about your friends and the, like saying that that guy in Saving Private Ryan's a coward, and like how do you know because you're not in a war? I would feel like this dude's a coward. Like yes. I I feel comfortable saying that. I feel comfortable saying that in certain situations I would be braver than him. Like yes. even though I'm not in that situation, like I would not. In choice between fighting somebody and jumping off a cliff, he jumps off a cliff. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I might just crawl down into a ball and cry. <laughs> but I'm not going to, my fight or flight is not going to be literally try and fly off a cliff. No, it's not how I'm going to go. And I, I feel that that's interesting to have a character who's that kind of unlikable. And mm-hmm. like he, he, just, he hates himself. And most people who know anything about him don't like him either. Like, Reich, early on, figures out this guy's a coward and doesn't like him. I think the only person in the film that likes him is Colonel Hart. Because Colonel Hart also isn't that into fighting. And he just yeah. wants to read Plato all day. So As we, as we see later when he is like... Um... Because, like, what, what, the biggest thing that the cannibals have to do at the end of the film is they got to kill to survive. And mm-hmm. it's the characters who have proven that they're not fighters, that they're not uh, killers, that decide that they can't be cannibals. And yeah. Hart is one of them. Spoiler alert for that. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it's it's really fun, like, because I love the subtle ways that they 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 remind you that that uh, Boyd is not a good soldier. There's that scene where um, where Reich is climbing down into the cave. And Boyd has his loaded gun pointed directly at at Reich, and uh, Reich calls him out on it and says, "Like, hey, Captain, yeah. could you move that aside?" And I'm like, even uh, like even me with my my very few my my little knowledge of firearms knows not to do that. <laughs> and so this second lieutenant who later becomes a captain, like, how did he become second lieutenant? Was he just a rich boy? Like, does he have like does he have a, a family of influence? Well, I think he, that's he, the thing. Yeah, he failed. He probably failed upwards. Yes, exactly. Like, like, like in this, like, that's how he gets, like, he gets promoted after being a hero, but, like, his superior, who we did not mention, his superior, General Slauson, is played by John Spencer. It's his last movie. That's the guy, who, he was in the West Wing, and if you're like me and you've seen The Rock eight million times, he's Womack. <laughs> he's Womack. Yeah. Womack, you son of a bitch. And so he, he calls out Guy Pierce's character immediately. He's like, you're a coward. You're a coward. I'd kill you if I could. And then they just like uh, they 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 give him a promotion, but they send him to like the worst place to to be any type of. <laughs> I, you know, I live in yeah. I live in Japan, and and in Japan, it's very it's very hard to fire someone. Um, there's a lot of laws to protect workers, which is good. And although if you work with a bastard, it sucks. And so <laughs> we have had workers in my company who have been moved to better places just because nobody else wants to work with them. And kind of the same thing, you know, that that's the whole idea of failing upward. Like you, you just, you burn someone, everyone hates you and they want to get rid of you. And the only place they can get rid of you is better. So you get to move up and they get all stuck there. It happens. <laughs> it's office politics, but in this case with cannibals. <laughs>
two people who involved in the making of this film that we did not talk about are the composers. Yes. Um, oh Michael my God. Nyman and Damon Alburn from The Gorillas and Blur. Um, yes. The score to this film is bizarre. <laughs> yes, it's why like um it's why I I am not sure how I feel about the film like cuz sometimes like the soundtrack will totally get me out of it and I'll just be like what the fuck was that <laughs> and so and so um certain aspects of the soundtrack I do like but certain things I I just can't stand because it's like it it the film never decides on if it's going to go full comedy or if it's going to go full horror and I yeah. think that's it really pussyfoots around there and I really don't like that part like and i think it probably has to do with all the executive meddling and everything and um yeah yeah i feel how the how the film uses a score in the opening scene is coming is comedic like yes. and now the movie opens with, with with a nitschke quote and then another quote saying eat me like it <laughs> it's going for comedy in the beginning i think and it goes back and forth and the score does the same thing i think the score is used the score is used best at the very end of the film and during the cave scene. I think the yes. cave scene is the highlight of the film. I think everyone would agree. Mm-hmm. And the way that score, it just has this weird percussive energy. It's one of those scores that, well, I can't tell what the instruments are. And I always like that in the music. If I'm like, what is that noise? And it's just such a weird, weird soundtrack. But one of the stranger things about it is that it's, comp- it's, it's credited to both of them. But it's not a collaboration. Mike, Michael Nyman, who's a minimalist composer, he did about th- like 40%. And then David Alburn did about 60%. And those they, they didn't work together. And um, as far as I know, the, the cave stuff, that is Nyman. And... Uh, the like other, the funny the, banjo stuff. The funny, is, the banjo yeah. stuff. It doesn't really say... On the on the on the track listing, who does what? Unfortunately, um, but it is a it is a weird score. I want to find the um, British version of the soundtrack because the British version has remixes mm-hmm. <laughs> by by William Orbit. Oh yes, that would sound so cool. I kind of want to like because I love William Orbit. Like he did my favorite version of um, a U two song. Uh, Electrical Storm, which was amazing. Okay, and like he does really good work. Like he, like he, the the album he did for Madonna is one of my favorites. I mean, so, I, yeah. don't get me going on Madonna. We could, I mean, that, could, <laughs> that that's a whole other podcast. William, oh, I'm very hot and cold on William Orbit. He can be great. Or t- I've heard a lot of William Orbit, and he has two, but he has two. He's 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 off and on, and there's very little mm-hmm. middle ground. So I would I would be interested to hear that. But I owned the score for this at one point. Um. It's so it's so bizarre, and I even though it doesn't always work, and it is kind of jarring. I respect it. I, I like yeah. it when a movie takes a because especially nowadays musical scores are boring. Yes, I hate that. Um, that whole, like I kind of blame um, Howard Shore. For, I think it's Howard Shore, the guy who did uh, Inception. I kind of blame mm-hmm. him for the boring. Uh, scores that they have now just because he set the standard with like the inception noise and everything like that and it's very like i'm glad like even though i'm not into tarantino anymore at least he does like different things somewhere. yeah and, and i wish more people uh, i think it's just the um 
back in the nineties, uh, there was a lot of more, a lot more room for people with smaller uh, to medium sized budgets. Now it's either indie or complete blockbuster blockbuster and i think that's why there is so little innovation in regards to like score or even like just doing something weird like this movie for the sake of doing it (laughs) yeah yeah you talk about movies being either blockbusters or really indie and the middle movie kind of vanished this was a middle movie like Mm -hmm. this movie was made for about 12 million dollars um not a lot of money but it still bombed hard um, I was looking up reviews at the time, and it had pretty m- mixed reviews. And not not everyone, even the people who didn't who hated it, didn't hate it. Hate it. Like it got a lot of like, it's bad, but it's interesting type reviews. One of the a good review with a very good poll quote. This this guy Paul Willenston from the Allentown, Pennsylvania Morning Call said, "It's Deliverance meets Fargo meets Interview for Vampire meets Silence of the Lambs." Three stars, and <laughs> that's a bit trite. But he's not wrong. Like, I feel that's a good, you know, because it's intense like Deliverance. It's weird like Fargo. It has vampire type stuff in it. And a little, and like the villain hero dynamic is a little bit like Silence of the Lambs. So, you know, yeah, good. Um, But a lot of the reviews were like, it's interesting, but it's too scary to be, it's too gross to be a comedy. It's too, but it's not scary enough to be a horror movie. And the 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 score was very divisive. Like, yeah, yeah. Because I, I like I love uh, certain parts of the score, but I think that like for example, the part of the score that I didn't like was the part where Ives is chasing uh, Jeremy Davies around the mountain. That didn't work for me because I'm like, this is supposed to be horrifying. <laughs> like, we're supposed to be terrified that this poor little like Christian guy is about to be gutted like a fish. And I'm yeah. laughing because they're playing a banjo as he chases them around. <laughs> yeah, I would love to know more about that. I tried the, the the Blu-ray has commentary tracks, but they're really bad, and mm-hmm. I turned them off. Like the one by Antonia Bird, she, she doesn't. They're just watching the movie, and Robert Carlyle is just like, "Yeah, good shot. Yeah, good part. Yeah, good part." And it just doesn't doesn't tell you a lot. I would love to know more about how like those choices, but whatever the reasons were. It wasn't only critics who hated this movie. Like, this, nobody saw it. Like, mm-hmm. in my times, I, this is, like, I think, like, the 20th episode I've, I've recorded of this. This is the worst opening week of any movie I've ever talked about on this show. And remember, I talked about Jim Cotta. <laughs> this, movie, <laughs> this movie opened on March 19th, 1999. Now, March is usually a dumping ground. Not as oh, bad yes. as not as bad yeah. as January. January, especially back then, January was the ultimate dumping ground. But March is when you have stuff; it's not big enough for a summer film. So, put it out now, and maybe you'll make money. So, uh, I uh, at Box Office Mojo, it has the top twenty for that week. Ravenous in its first week was number eighteen <laughs> at only one point oh four million dollars. Um. Just, just some things that outgrossed it, which I, I always find this stuff fascinating. So, like, Saving Private Ryan in its 35th week. <laughs> More money. Payback in its 7th week. The Other Sister. <laughs> oh, my God, I remember that movie. <laughs> in its 4th week. <laughs> did more money than this. Wing Commander in its second week did more money than this. 
The Corrupter in its second week did more money than this. Ra- the Rage, Carrie 2, made more money this week than Ravenous did as a whole. <laughs> um, oh my god, the other sister, though. Like um, The reason why that, that movie um, is is dear to me is because it has the first uh savage garden song in years on the soundtrack so of course i was just like yeah let's go see that movie and get the soundtrack (laughs) you do that uh (laughs) i will abstain from commenting on savage garden um this was this this was the week that forces of nature opened and that was a pretty big movie uh with sandra bullock and ben affleck but Mm -hmm. also also outgrossing ravenous in its second week, Baby Geniuses made $4.3 million. You know, Ravenous made $1 million in its first week. And when you combine the rest of its theatrical run, it made a total of $2 million. Now, that is bad. <laughs> that, that, and the movie had an ad campaign. Like, I, I, I remember the commercials for it. And like, like I said, me and my friend went to go see it opening weekend. I think that including us, there were probably five people in that theater. Um, <laughs> so I just feel like if it would have been like an amazing, 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 amazing film, then it would have done okay. If it would have been a decent horror movie, it would have done okay. But it was so weird. It didn't have a huge star to it. And it wasn't enough of any type of genre to really attract any audience mm-hmm. that it was just, it was doomed. And, you know, kudos for making it like <laughs> I'm still happy it got made, but it's just such a weird fact that it even exists that I guess we should be happy. We should be happy. It came out at all, but are you surprised this movie even exists in the first place? Like, I'm the right type of audience for it, but however, like as like as I watch it now, as like because I'm a filmmaker, um, wh- I can see all of the choices that were made because a, a producer was like, "Here, like, uh, uh, gussy this up and make it better." Like you can see all the production notes in it because um, one of the big rules about writing and filmmaking is you show, you don't tell. And so that's where the voiceover is very, very apparent in terms of like, we didn't have enough money to film all of this. So here you go. And (laughs) And a lot of stuff was edited after the fact too. Yeah. Yes. And so like, it really bothers me because I'm like, if they like the best way to make um, Boyd a sympathetic character is to show like how hard it was for him to deal with that war. Like that would like having a scene or two where you see him, freeze where you see like so he doesn't look as much of a coward he's just afraid like he like it would have like softened his character a little bit more and like um i can't remember what scene he was talking about like i'm just thinking about it now but like it's there was so many scenes missing that would have made more sense like if this movie had focused either on ives completely or boyd completely it would have been uh, a better movie all around. It just felt too short to me. I, it also if that makes sense. Like the second half of the film kind of falls apart because Robert Carlyle's character Ives he convinces everybody at this fort to go with him to the cave where he says the woman is still there with the, with the actual cannibal. He says he's not the actual cannibal. Another cannibal there. He ambushes and kills everybody there except 
uh, Boyd, Guy Pierce's character, escapes. Guy Pierce's character has to then eat Reich to survive, goes back to the camp, and then he finds out that Ives has taken the, or Colhoun, whatever he goes by at that point, he's, yeah, Colhoun has taken the name of Colonel Ives and is now in charge of the fort. Mm-hmm. That's his plan. And the only other person who was there who's still alive when Ives was there before is the doctor who's an alcoholic and doesn't remember him. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> you can use that. But I feel, and then he wants, and then you find out that uh, Colonel Hart isn't dead, that Colhoun Ives has turned him to a cannibal and they are going to use the base as uh, basically feeding grounds when mm-hmm. Stray travels. They, they they explicitly say they're not going to kill families. They're not going to you know because they, they want to keep it you know low key. So they'll look for drifters, loners, and and devour them. But I feel like this plan has a few holes. Like <laughs> like so that Martha has to go out to get help, and yes. when she brings back help, you know uh, the help's going to see that Colonel Hart's alive now. He was not before, and if. Or if they kill all three of those people, which I think was the intention, is to kill all three of them, then what happens? Like, I feel like this place would get a reputation pretty quick as being a place where you come in and you don't leave. Yeah. And so it's 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 an interesting idea. And I guess it's the kind of thing that when you're watching it the first time, you don't think about it, you know. But when you watch it the second time, it 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 does it's it doesn't hold up to scrutiny and <laughs> it's just a weird idea. And again, I really wish they would have done more with Martha and George. Yeah. Because especially Martha. Martha is a great character. She has some of the best act. Like there's a scene in that movie where when she sees what happened to the, to Boyd and Colhoun at the very end, the look on her face is just, you know, acting is reacting and her reaction there is great. And just a few of the small things. And she has a sense of humor about her. But she's played by uh, what, Sheila Mae Towsey, who was who's from Wisconsin. And she is, I'm going to say this wrong. I need your help here. Menomini? I think so. Yeah, and let me see. And Bridge Munsee. So she um, raised on reservations. So she is a native, you know, a First Nations actress. Joseph Running Fox. He is Pueblo. He <laughs> is... First Nations. They they are, you know, it's not they actually got First Nations people. They didn't get, you know, some Mexican Americans, you know, <laughs> yes. which uh, you know, they actually went through the effort, which is great. And and the the representation, I think, you know, as a white guy, they're <laughs> they're good characters in the movie. Like they're not they're not stereotypes. They're not they're not fodder. They <laughs> are actual people with actual feelings. But they just don't do enough with them, and that's a, that's a problem with Hollywood as a whole. With you know, First Nations actors, they just don't get roles. Exactly, yeah. Or if they do get roles, it's like um, I, I I got really mad once um, because one of the coolest characters, native characters, who is a Mohawk character, is in the French movie Brotherhood of the Wolf. The only problem with that Mohawk character is he's played by Mark DeCostas, who <laughs> yeah. is yeah. Filipino. Uh, I think there's some white in there, Japanese. <laughs> so, like, yeah. he is not native. And so that pissed me off because I'm like, okay, the coolest Mohawk Canadian character in the history of time is not played by a native guy. <laughs> and I yeah. love Mark. And so, but it's like, it's 
like it's two steps forward, one step back type thing. And like, I do love the characters in this movie, but it still bothers me that the that one of the first people to die is uh, is George. Yeah. Like <laughs> so after well, he uh, after he axes the hell out of Colonel Hart. <laughs> well, he is. I mean, he's the first. That, he's the first. But it, that's all back to back to back, though. It's not like yeah, exactly. It's not yeah. like a slasher film where the black guy dies first. It is. They all kind of die at the same time. <laughs> So, uh, but but yeah, and like a lot of like, I guess the the most famous like movie with Native Americans as a uh, First Nations people as a key point that probably Last of the Mohicans or, or like uh, Dances with Wolves. Dances with yeah. Wolves. I don't like Dances with Wolves. Last of the Mohicans is an awesome movie. Um, I've never seen it. Like uh, mostly oh. just because I'm just like eh, Native people in the oldie times past. So like, I mean. And- it's based on a book, uh, and you know, I don't know how the book was. It does have like Daniel Day Lewis is not playing a Native American. He's he's a white. He's playing an adopted white guy. Um, mm-hmm. So there is that, and it does have Russell Means, uh, who was a Native uh, uh, a First Nations activist. He was in the uh, the he was in the, uh, American Indian Movement in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the Native American in um, uh, um, Natural Born Killers. Uh, that guy. If you've seen that movie, he's great in it, and I feel that movie is it's probably it probably does rely on stereotypes. But in, in terms of in terms of just being a good movie, yo, that's a good movie, and it is, <laughs> and it is gorgeous. Um, because that's Michael Mann as most Michael Mann, and it is just absolutely beautiful. One of the best scores you'll ever hear in your entire life by Trevor Jones and Randy Elman. Like, yo, watch that movie. Like. <laughs> It's a good movie. I and if you hate it, you can you can you, know, you attack me later. Um, <laughs> but like Joseph Running Fox, his biggest role is Geronimo. Like mm-hmm. he gets the role he gets to play, and it's just that shit. That's another thing when doing this podcast. Like I was just talking about it just a couple of days ago. Um, you find interesting female. You find interesting women character actors. They don't get a lot of work. Yes. Because they're not pretty in terms of Hollywood standards. And it's the same thing with people of color, indigenous people, anyone who's not a white guy. You get these really interesting actors, and then there's no roles for them. Because they can't just be cast as people. They have to be an indigenous person. Yeah. Very frustrating. It's just annoying, that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I... But also this movie, like... um. It's something. It's a problem I have too with the with the miniseries, the terror as well. Um, I know that this time that this this time in history, there wouldn't be a lot of women in these types of locations. Oh, so yeah, it always yeah. bothers me to see like that. There's only like one female character throughout this whole movie. It's the same thing with the terror. And so, like, I do really like historical horror. I love the historical dramas. If you haven't seen the the first season of The Terror, check it out. It's really, really good. It's a lot better than the book. Um, And it's really depressing to me because The Terror... Ha, uh, is an American American English production, and it had more Native representation in it than all of the Canadian films of last year. Like it had more of, and it was really appalling to me as a Canadian to find out that this show went to great lengths to ensure that the Inuit people were represented in the represented represented in a positive way, and Canada can't even do that for its own people. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh. 
but I still love that show anyway. Like uh, Jeremy, Jared Harris is amazing in it. And so, yeah. And like, I do like that. Like I'm changing my mind about this movie because I do like (laughs) it, but I like, it is still weird. Like I can see, I I agree with Antonio Bird about how the uh, voiceover kind of ruins it. Because it's like, it's again, show me, don't tell me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think it should have been a little bit longer to focus on Boyd as a character. Because the, the whole arc of his story is that he faces death. And and the first time he faces death, he's afraid. And the, first, the next time he faces death, uh, well, he faces death, let's see, three times in this movie. Once at war, once when he jumps off the mountain. And once when he decides he's going to kill Colonel Ives. Mm -hmm. And so like, and this movie is about him accepting his own mortality. And that's how he wants to die. And so the only, um, the people who have more security in their identity are the people who die in this movie. I think like, this is just coming to me now, but like uh, Topher, who the priest guy is secure in his identity as a Christian. Uh, Reich is con- is secure in his identity as a soldier, mm-hmm. um, and like all these other people are secure in who they are and like what they value, and it's the the really dark people who um, don't realize how dangerous the situation they're in mm-hmm. is that are the ones who try to cheat death because well, freaking um, Hart tries to cheat cheat death when he's afraid and faced with it. And Boyd does the same thing, and so does Ives, ultimately. Yeah. I would say that Martha is confident in her identity as somebody who wants to get the fuck out of that fort. (laughs) And she is the smartest person in that movie. She's like, she's given the opportunity to bounce, and she's like, later... She doesn't even take the horse that the. Well, see, there's no the horse left. There's no yeah. horse left. Oh she no! Like at the end, she co- she walks in on a horse. She comes in on a horse with the uh, with the two soldiers yeah. like, after everybody's dead. And when she leaves, she just makes a run for it. She's and, smart. Wow. Yeah, she's just like fuck this place. I'm out. So yeah, and I, that is kind of a, that. That's the closest to a stereotype of like you know the the wisest person being the indigenous person. But yo, no, she's just right. Like <laughs> she, she made the right call. Not that much to say about it. This is one of those movies that, like, it's hard if someone likes it. I don't know what else to recommend because um, I it guess, is like kind of weird. Yeah, like yeah, it's even with it is one of a kind. Not and you know, in terms of subject matter, I think the only movie that comes close I have not seen it is a uh, Bone Tom- Tom- Bone Tomahawk. Yes. Bone Tomahawk. I've seen it. Yeah, like it's kind of. Um... It's kind of weird, uh, that movie. Uh, mostly because, like, um, it has a character... Uh, it, the villains of the story are indigenous people. Yeah. But yeah. the way they save their ass in that case 
is that the indigenous people that are the villains are these prehistoric human beings yeah. who have been living in isolation for thousands of years, who haven't evolved past a certain aspect. And they are incredibly vicious people. They're basically animals. And it's really horrifying to me because I'm like, I don't know how you could make this movie now. Like, I, I could see how you're obviously trying to save your ass with these with the betrayal of the native people in this context because they have good natives in the movie too. But um, I think a better, um, I think a better version of this movie would be the terror because the terror okay. is about the the Franklin expedition and it has it doesn't have as much comedic parts, but it's it's very scary. It's very sad. And it's also like really well acted. Like it has a lot of great actors in it. Jared Harris being one, um, and it's uh, has very very good indigenous representation. Um, okay. The only problem I have with it is that it's too short. <laughs> it's ten episodes, but it's the it's the kind of ten episodes where once it's done, you go back and watch it again and you see things you missed the first time. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. So if like if you like this movie, a better version of it is uh the terror because okay. it also has cannibalism in it too if that's your thing <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna go on a list of films. films to be honest most cannibal films are not very good yes um, exactly because it, it, it's it's more about shock value i would say the only not it's not really similar to this movie but if you want another off-kilter 90s western then the quick and the dead Oh, that's a really good movie. I love that. Well, I'm a I'm a huge fan girl of Sam Raimi, so he's mm-hmm. one of my favorite film directors, and I take a lot of uh, my lessons as a director from him. And that one's really good, just because it's like um, it's it's very quick. Like, well, obviously it's in the title. It's very <laughs> a fast paced movie. It has a lot of good characters. Um, Russell Crowe is really good in it, but he's kind of like uh, he's like um, he's like Boyd in this movie, where he's kind of pathetic. Yeah. Like he plays uh, a former gunslinger who repents and becomes a priest. And Sharon Stone plays this this female gunslinger, rather, who has some sort of vendetta against Gene Hackman's character yeah. who runs this horrible town like with an iron fist because he's an amazing gunslinger. And you find out it's because he forced her to kill her father when she was a girl. And like, it, mm-hmm. like it's oh, not yeah. really a spoiler. It comes up, but like, it, it, very fast in the film. But it's very, very good, and it has a really great cast. A uh, young Leonardo DiCaprio's in it. Um, who else is in it? Um, I think it has There's a great a... style. Like Sam Raimi's direction in that is very. It's he is still in Evil Dead mode, and he's making yes. a western. So it's it's a great little movie. And one more that's kind of a western and kind of similar would be Near Dark. Which is oh yeah, I've never seen it, but I, I want to soon. Neo Dark <laughs> is, a, is Neo Dark's a fantastic film. It's by Catherine Bigelow. Uh, it has Bill Paxton and the actress who played Vasquez in Aliens and Lance Hendrickson. Yeah, Jeanette Goldstein and Lance Hendrickson and Bill Paxton together again. And it's a <laughs> and Tim Thomason, who I love, love Tim Thomason. And it's a modern day western with vampires. And yes, and it has a score. Speaking of weird ass scores, it has a score by Tangerine Dream. So, like, I love Tangerine Dream. That movie's kind of made for me. It's it's a Western <laughs> vampire movie with the cast of Aliens and a school by Tangerine Dream directed by Catherine Bigelow. That's a lot of, like, me shit. So <laughs> I might be biased there. but And it's not that similar to this, but it does play a lot with, like, I don't want to be this thing you made me type yeah, stuff. And- 
Yeah, and Bone Tomahawk, I would, like, if you're into really hardcore gore, yeah, watch it, but, like, I am into gory horror movies, like, um, and there's a scene in Bone Tomahawk I couldn't stand. Is it that bad? It's really bad. Like, Okay. Okay, I'll describe it so you don't have to see it. So there's a scene where they're torturing a guy in front of uh, Kurt, Kurt Russell's her- character. And the people um, scalp this guy, put his uh, put the scalp in his mouth, nail it into his mouth. Wow. So he's freaking out. They turn him upside down, spread his legs, and start chopping him in half and rip him in half. Mm. And, yeah, like that, that scene like lives in horror. And David Arquette's in that movie too. So hey, there like, you go, yeah. <laughs> But you know, I've seen worse. Wilson. Yeah, I've seen worse. I used to be in the French horror, so I've like I've seen Inside and Martyrs. So like I can go there, but I'm 40 years old now. I'm old, and I don't know if I can deal with that anymore. But <laughs> and you know, I didn't see a lot of attacks about that movie's representation when it came out. So either either nobody saw it, or at least it's doing something right. You know, I, like you said, it does have they 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 other those people enough, so they're not natives they're not technically native people but it's still kind of like i still found it kind of like um it it was kind of strange in that way like where it was like okay i know what you're trying to do but you're still like these guys are still being played by native i still think i think it's it's one of those things it's one of those things where it's like the movie on its own isn't that bad but when you consider the the state of hollywood with indigenous people it's kind of annoying Oh yeah, exactly. Maybe like <laughs> it's kind of like like in the eighties, my, my like with uh, representations of gay men. Like in the eighties, Cruising is a great movie. I love the movie Cruising, but it was the only movie with a gay man that came out that year, and it's about a serial killer. So yes. when you look at when you look at the movie on its own, maybe it's not that bad. But in the context, everything around it, it's a little iffier. But anyway, yeah, I I do. I probably still will. I love like looking at the cast of Bone Tomahawk. It has Kurt Russell. It has Matthew Fox. It has David Arquette, um, Michael Pare, Patrick Wilson, Ma- who's Mike, uh, Sid Haig, and Son Young. Like I'm gonna see this movie. Like <laughs> <laughs> eventually, it has Michael Pare. Like he's in nothing. I love him so. Um, oh yeah, he. Uh, speaking of Michael Pare, he was in uh, what the heck was it called? Um, uh, Streets of Fire. Like that oh, oh, is an amazing movie. Oh well, movie. that was the that was the second episode of this podcast. Oh so. my god! Like that movie, ugh, it was one of my, um, it was one of those movies I saw because I had a massive crush on Willem Dafoe. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've hit this. We've hit the Streets of Fire portion of Cinema Oblivia, which means it's time to wrap it up. So, Sonia, again, thanks for joining me. I thought that was a really fun talk. Do you want to tell more p- people more about how they can find you on the internet? Oh, yeah. What you're doing on the um, internet? Well, you can find me on Twitter as Sonia Ballantyne. Just Google my name. Um, I'm also on Twitter as Honey underscore Child, which is my more ribald uh, Twitter that I'm trying to phase out because, yeah, it's it's ribald. Um, okay. You can also follow my page, Sonia Ballantyne, on Facebook. You could also listen to my podcast, uh, Live from the Pool House, which is a podcast I do with T.L. Foster about uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and how it impacted us as children growing up uh as uh because tl is basically carlton banks like that's how he grew up and so the show is also me learning about american culture from an american show and so yeah check that out um i recently um tvo kids on youtube recently released my episode of a children's show called wolf joe so check that out as well 
And what else do I have coming out? Um, uh, just send me some well wishes on Twitter because it's been a dark time to be a native person in Canada right now. Mm, I'm sure yeah. like a few people are, ch- are watching the news. And so it's always good to hear about like, if you wanted to buy my children's book, Carrie Berry Lynn, that would be awesome. Like just make sure you're like looking out for your indigenous friends out uh, right now. And like maybe buy me a Neil Newbin, um, the cameo <laughs> where he's pretending to be Heisenberg from Resident Evil, and that will make my day. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah. You. Well, <laughs> awesome. Well, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Lost Turntable on my website, lostturntable.com. And I'm also on another podcast, Alexander's Ragtime Band with Elliot Long and Jeremy Parrish. And on that one, we talk about progressive rock music. So if you're into that, check it out. But anyway, it's another episode of Cinema Oblivion. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next week with another new episode. Take care.